works, and Mephibosheth. Say it with me. Mephibosheth. Somebody asked me this morning, how do you pronounce that? I said, call him Mephi, just Mephi. But anyway, we're going to look at Ephesians chapter 2, and the entire Bible as a whole, and Ephesians specifically, this text very closely, all of these can be broken down into three very simple truths. All through the Bible, we see something here. The first truth is that we are saved by grace. Paul mentions there in verse 5, very emphatic as a matter of fact, he said, by grace you have been saved. And he picks that up in verse 8. When he says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. The second truth is from verse 9, when he says we are not saved by works. He kind of comes in the back door to make sure that he's covering all of this so that we're sure to understand what he has to say. And then in verse number 10, he says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared, prepared, prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are created by God in Christ for the specific purpose of doing good works. Trying to reconcile these three, and I found this to be the case over the the 35, 36 years I've been preaching now, that there are many in, in Christendom that have a hard time understanding how these three can be said in the same sentence and gel. Because for Paul to boldly tell us that we are saved by grace, that I'm not saved by works, and then to tell me that I am to to, uh, be involved in good works seems to be giving with one hand but taking it back with another. I want us to examine this dilemma, if I can refer to it as a dilemma, and find in God's Word from a very unusual place. This is from... First and Second Samuel both, you'll find Mephibosheth spoken of, and his name is mentioned, I believe, 13 times completely, but he may be referred to in other areas as well. But we're going to try to gel the Old Testament with the New Testament when Paul speaks here in Ephesians chapter 2 about grace, works, and Mephibosheth. So first of all, Paul says there in verse 8, for by grace are you saved. Now we know what grace is. If you don't, let me tell you very quickly, very simply, it simply means we receive something we did not deserve. We receive something that we did not work for or earn on our own efforts. Mephibosheth, to give you a little bit of history to kind of lead up to everything I want to say here, Mephibosheth was the son of Jonathan. Jonathan was the son of Saul, who was king of Israel. All right? And at the end of Saul's life, his mentor, the prophet Samuel, had already died. He'd already been buried in the ground. Saul had turned his back on God. The Philistines were now moving down on the Israelite people. Saul prayed to God, but God did not answer for good reason. He turned to his servants and he said, Hey, I want to find a witch 
that can tell me what I need to do. And they all kind of twiddled their thumbs because witches were not allowed, but this king was going against his own edict about witches being even something people could refer to. But he begged them, he pleaded with them, I'm not going to attack you, go find me a witch. And somebody raised their hand and said, I saw on Facebook, we'll see if you're listening, that there's a witch down in Endor. Maybe you need to go see her. So Saul made an appointment, and he went down to Endor, he changed his clothes, and there's a sermon right there. He changed his clothes, he disguised himself, he went to the witch, knocked on her door. Can I help you? He said, yes, I want you to bring up the spirit of a dead man. She said, as witches would, whom shall I bring up for you? And he said, I want you to bring up the prophet Samuel. So this witch began to do whatever it is that witches do to to do what they do to bring up the dead, if they do that. And it seems that this woman is surprised because, ah, she screams and says, I see a God coming up out of the earth. And Saul says, what does he look like? Wanted some identification or evidence that it was him. She said, he's an old man that's coming up, and he's wrapped in a robe. There's another sermon right there. He's wrapped in a robe. Saul knew it was Samuel, so he bowed his face to the ground in in respect of Samuel, like he should have done with God previous, and he may not be here doing what he's doing now. He bows his head and face to the ground, and the spirit of Samuel says in 1 Samuel 28, 15, he says, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Why have you disturbed me? Seems to me if you're disturbed, you must be doing something else that you don't want to be taken away from. I would venture to say he's probably giving praise to God because he's in paradise. And I was interrupted. But Saul said, I am deeply distressed, for the Philistines make war against me, and God has departed from me and does not answer me anymore, neither by prophets nor by dreams. Therefore, I have called on you that you might reveal to me what I might do. Samuel said, as he tells the truth of God, he says, this happened to you because you have turned your back on God. And God had no choice but to turn his back away from you. Listen to what Samuel says next to Saul. He says, you and your army will go up against the Philistines tomorrow, less than 24 hours. The Philistines will come down and they will win the battle over the Israelite people. They will take them captive. But tomorrow at this time, you're going to be just as dead as I am good news. (laughs) No. But then the Bible says that Saul went into battle, maybe thinking he wouldn't die. But the truth is, he went into battle. Saul and his sons were killed in that battle. Now, meanwhile, back at the palace, meanwhile, back at the palace, They heard about what happened to Saul and his sons, that they were now dead. So the woman in charge of Mephibosheth 
began to be a little bit fearful, or a whole lot fearful, because she knew what Saul had said about this David, this new king. So for fear of her life, and for fear of this young five-year-old boy, Mephibosheth, she packed a bag or two, and she ran out of the home, or the palace, with Mephibosheth, and she either dropped him, some versions say that she fell on him, but either way, either his hips, his knees, or his ankles were destroyed, crushed, and he could no longer walk. He was lame from that day on. A cripple who depended on so many other people for his life. She took him out of this fruitful country, this fruitful, beneficial, luxurious country of the palace of the king, to a place of exile that's referred to in the scriptures as Lodibar. He lowered Debar by leaving the king and going to a place of fruitlessness. A place of poverty, a land with no life or very little life to offer anybody. It was fruitless. Mephibosheth, as I will try to explain in this lesson this morning, he lived in fear of the king. He lived in poverty. He lived in loneliness, weakness, and desperate fear of the revenge that this new King David would bring on top of him. And besides that, he was a cripple. He could not fend for himself. Mephibosheth lived in fear. Our problem today as human beings is we, we are just like Mephibosheth in one great way. We are all sons of Adam. And what I mean by that is Adam sinned, and when Adam sinned, sin sprang to life on this earth, and death came right in behind that sin. Death is a separation. Spiritually, it's separation from God. Physically, it is the spirit or the soul of man that separates from the body, and the body goes back to the grave. Not only... Not only was he living in fear, but he was also living in rejection. In 1 Corinthians 15.52, the Apostle Paul said, For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ, in Christ all shall be made alive. In Romans 5.19, he says, For as by one man's disobedience, that is Adam in the Garden of Eden, many were made sinners... So also by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. Paul is not saying that I am born with the sin of my father on me. I'm not born with the sin of my grandfather or even all the way back to Adam. I am not born with that sin on me that I will have to deal with and repent of because that's not my sin. I have enough sin in my own life that I need to care for, let alone Adam's or yours or anybody else's. Paul is telling us, That when sin was born into this world through Adam, that all men, all of mankind has fallen like dominoes because of what Adam did. Not only was Mephibosheth living in rejection in low debar, but he was also living in, in rejection to who his king really was. Now, if you had asked Mephibosheth, what do you think of King David? 
he no doubt would have had some anger on his lips, some loathing for him, hatred even for this King David. But why? Mephibosheth had never, had never worked around David or, or had him as his king to hear him from the, the palace to relate edicts to him or commands or laws. He'd never served under him to know whether he was a godly man or an ungodly man, a good man, a righteous man, a bad man, or a horrible man. He did not know this. So where did he get his idea that he was a bad person? Well, his entire attitude was based on what other people said about King David. Now, I'm paraphrasing a lot of this just to give you this story here. His grandfather Saul... You know his feelings about David. He didn't like him. He hated his guts because the people liked him a lot more than they liked him. So Saul said a lot of bad things about him. So Mephibosheth was living and spending his life on what he inherited through family and what they spoke. How many people today hold on to things religiously Christian-wise, that have no basis in Scripture. But because mom and dad, grandma and grandpa, somebody way back in the past said something, it has just perpetuated itself down to today. And I'm going to hold on to that because it sounds logical, but they will not find that in the Word of God. How many of us hold on to those things? I believe that far too many believers today will not trust God to the extent that they should. They trust a little. They trust a little bit, and the old devil has been one of those that he wants to say that God's not a fun God to have in your life. And he started that in, in Genesis with Adam and Eve. You want to know what God really thinks of you, the old devil says? You can't trust him too much, just a little. You can't trust him too much. He's been a Debbie Downer from day one. All he wants to do is take away your joy, your fun, and give you some sterile righteousness to sit in a pew, and that's all you need to do. Just be happy with that. So, like Mephibosheth, far too many of us want to move out of, out of the palace, God's home, and move to the outskirts of town having just enough vision of the good things that are going on. Having just enough of a vision of, of, of things, but we don't want to do too much and get too excited. We're happy in the suburbs believing things that are really not true and that we're not even willing to look at in any great depth. Just enough to get by, just enough to appease my mind that I'm doing okay. And we're happy to stay there. People today are still living in rebellion toward God because they believe the lies that have been passed down about His character. The character of God. It's not that good of a character, people say. They do not believe that God wants to give them the very best that He has to offer from heaven itself. This is the way Mephibosheth was living. He had a rebellious attitude based on what he'd heard others and not the absolute truth that he needed to hear. Mephibosheth was living in misery. He didn't even realize it. When I was growing up, we were poor. 
We didn't know it, but we were poor. We were actually so poor that there was a family in Africa that was supporting us. It wasn't quite that bad. But I remember when my dad got his paycheck, I don't know how much it was. Back then, $100 a week was probably pretty good, but I don't think he quite made that much where he worked. But when he got his paycheck and mom went to the grocery store, we had, believe it or not, we had the finest meat that man could have. Hot dogs. We were excited because we actually had a bun to put it in. And if we were doing very well and the bills hadn't piled up, we might even have a nice cold Pepsi. Man, we were the richest people on the block. But we were poor and we did not even know it. Mephibosheth was living in misery, but he didn't know it. To any great extent, he was living lifeless, fruitless exile because of the lies that were passed down by or about his king, David. Nothing positive was said by Mephibosheth because nothing positive was spoken to him about his king. Let me ask you a question. What is, in a nutshell, what is the gospel of Jesus Christ? In a nutshell... What is the gospel of Jesus Christ? Is it not positive thinking? Oh, it should be if it's not to you. I read the the most positive thinking book that has ever been out on the market today, not by Norman Vincent Peale, not by Dale Carnegie, not by Robert Shuler, not by Joel Olstein or any other person out there. I read a book that was given to you and me by the Holy Spirit of Almighty God. My friend, that is the most positive book you can read because it gives to us something so wonderful. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not only good news, but it is positive news. The night that Jesus was born, we celebrated just a few weeks ago. The angels sang from heaven, Behold, we bring you good tidings of ho-hum news. No, great joy happiness that you can have because of who's coming into the world. What our king offers us is happy, joyful, positive, encouraging, uplifting living. But some will try to live apart from God, staying on the outskirts because they believe the lies of many people in the world that what God has to offer, it's not all that joyful. I mean, look at some people. They look like they were baptized in pickle juice. So that's where people get their understanding of it. We need to live the life that says, my God is alive. And let our face know that and express that to other people that my God is alive. And he is not dead. Listen again to what Paul says and let this sink in. For by grace, for by grace, Are you saved? Oh, my friend, that's positive. Now, secondly, and this comes out of verse number nine, he says, not of works. Not of works. Let's try to to push these together, not force them, but let's try to make them meld together as they are meant to be from Scripture. One day before Mephibosheth was born. By the way, Mephibosheth means dispelled shame. 
dispelled shame, no longer ashamed. You see, Mephibosheth may at one point have been, I'm ashamed to call that man a king because my king because I hear all this bad stuff about him. But before Mephibosheth was even born, Jonathan and David, now you know who these guys are. Scripture says, God says in his word, that their souls were knit together. They were knit together. They were that close. They made a commitment to each other that everything that belongs to me, Jonathan, belongs to you. Everything that belongs to me, David, belongs to you, Jonathan, vice versa. They even said these words in Scripture. Jonathan said to David, everything I have, even my bloodline, there's another sermon. Even my bloodline is committed to you. David returned the favor and said, everything that I have, even my bloodline belongs to you. Well, right there we can see the covenant is made. The promise is made. The vow is made. The agreement between these two is now rock solid because of their love for one another. Now in the meantime, a lot of water passes under the bridge. And I think you know what I mean by that. Mephibosheth is born. He's crippled. He's taken to Lodabar. David is, becomes king. Saul and Jonathan are killed in battle. But David says, I need to keep the covenant that I made with Jonathan. I want to keep that covenant because we made that together. Jonathan is now gone. He's dead. But I made a promise that even his bloodline would be something I need to care for. So David began to ask around the palace. Does anybody know if Jonathan had any children? Anybody? So the word began to spread through the, the palace. And finally, one person named Ziba or Ziba. Z-I-B-A, a servant of David says, yes, by the way, king, there is one son of Jonathan who lives in Lodibar. Now David knew Lodibar. He knew the kind of place it was. So he sent servants in effort to keep his covenant promise with Jonathan. He kept or he sent servants to bring Mephibosheth back to the palace. So they go and find Mephibosheth and, the, and they tell him, the king's looking for you, mister. The king's looking for you. And this is probably some news that Mephibosheth did not want to hear. What he expected to hear, in, in my thinking, as he had been raised and trained to think what he thought by those who told him bad things or wrong things or false truths about him, he expected to hear something like this. Okay, buddy, you've had it now. I got rid of your father. I got rid of your entire family. They're all out of the way. And if I can just get rid of you, I'll have this entire thing behind me and I can go out and take my revenge on somebody else who's crossed me in a bad way. That may have been what he expected to hear. So he's taken to the palace and he can't run away. But he's taken to the palace and I can only imagine the fear he has as he's traveling the road to get back to the palace. 
And the Bible tells me that when he meets David, when David and him come face to face, that, that uh, Mephibosheth is so uh, respectful. Even though he'd been taught the wrong things, he is respectful of his king. And the Bible says he bowed his face to the floor. And this is when the king looks at him and says something very important. David said, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Why would he say that? Because he came afraid. This king's going to kill me. My father's dead. My grandfather's dead. I barely knew any of them at my age back then. He's going to kill me. So he's trying to show some respect so that that does not happen. But David said, don't be afraid. Let your fear be pushed aside. He said, I have good news for you. And I can just see him saying, excuse me? You have what? I have good news for you. What I'm going to do for you, Mephibosheth, is this. I'm going to give back all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul. You're going to do what? You're going to do what? And he said, besides that, I'm going to give you servants who will work that land, plant your crops, harvest your crops, and when the prophet comes in, it'll all be yours. What? You're going to do that for me? And David said, I'm not done yet. There's three more things I want you to realize. I want you to now be my son. I want you to live in my house. And I want you to put your feet under my table. Oh, I hope you see the picture that's here. I hope you see the picture that here, his response to David was complete disbelief. I can't believe that you would do this for me. This has to be a joke. Because Mephibosheth says these words. What am I? He didn't say who am I. He said, what am I that you should notice a dead dog like me? This is the self-esteem he had about himself. What, what, why would you even consider a dead dog like me? The treatment you're speaking of, my king, belongs to someone who's been loyal to you, who's loved you, who's served you. I have done nothing like that. As a matter of fact, I've only spread rumors about what I've heard, and I've just been unloyal, disloyal. I have been anything but your friend. I want you to hear now what David says to Mephibosheth. Hear this. If you don't hear anything else, I'll say it twice. I am not doing this for you because of anything you have done. You are receiving all of this because of your relationship with someone with whom I had a covenant. Hear that again. Mephibosheth is receiving land, servants, profit, a house, being a son. And sitting under his table. It's not because of anything you've done. But it's because of the covenant I have with someone else before you were ever born. My friend, look at the sermon material that you find here. The king says, I'm not doing this for you because of anything you've done. That, my friend, 
is the grace of God. That is a picture of the grace of God that Paul is speaking of there in Ephesians chapter 2. If you are ever accepted by God, it will not be on the basis of how good of a preacher you are, how well you can sing, how many hours you sit in church worshiping and listening to some crazy guy for 50 minutes. It won't be that long. But my friend, it will be on how, how much of a relationship you had with the one he has a covenant with already. That is the only begotten Son of God. That's the truth. The only begotten of the Father has already been accepted. You and I need to be in relationship with Him according to His Word. And God will then accept us. Why is it we would rather live in Lodabar, living a, a life that is not fruitful, that has no life to it, only maybe an hour on the Lord's Day, but throughout the week, we're so busy with living in Lodabar, getting as much as we can, not even realizing how poor we are away from our king. We would rather live in Lodabar. But God says, if you have nothing to offer me, that's fine. Come to me. Come to me, God says. Learn of me. And trust me at every step that you take. We might say, but I'm so lame. I'm crippled. I've been told all my life that I'm worthless. I'm useless. I'm just lame. But God said, still, come to me. Learn of me. Put your feet under my table. Become my son. Become my daughter. And all oh, the relationship we can have will be so sweet. Trust me, in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul tells us that we are saved by God's grace. But when we decide to live in Lodabar on the outskirts, being fruitless, we are living in rebellion against his word because we're not a part of his body as close as we can possibly be. And we are living in rejection of his holy word. When we do not deserve it, and we don't, the Bible says God is still reaching down saying, please come to me, come to me, and I will give you rest like you've never known before. He pleads for us even today to, to come, come. Don't put it off, but, but come. Paul tells us that we can never work our way into God's grace. Verses 8 and 9, he says, for by grace you have been saved through your faith. And that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should, should boast. If we live in a saved by works kind of a lifestyle, it seems to me that we will always be under guilt. We'll always be feeling guilt because there's something else I could have done, something else I should have done, something that went by and I did not get involved. So we're always going to feel guilty that we did not do more. There are others who feel like or believe that they can live a saved without works and they're absolutely fine. I find it baffling that there are those, and I've come across people like this, I've not seen it here, thank, thank the good Lord. You've had some good teaching before I got here five months ago. Can't believe it's five months, can you? 
Can you? You say, yes. But I find it baffling sometimes that those pe some people are very spiritually arrogant. They boast out loud, but that they try to do it reservedly, but they still want people to hear it about what they're doing and, and outdoing other people, outdoing others. I read a, a humorous story recently about a man who wanted to surprise his wife. And if a man wants to surprise his wife, ladies, watch out. Uh, <laughs> watch out, and you'll find that's the case even in this story. But uh, a man wanted to surprise his wife, so he took the day off. She went to work. She figured he's taking the day off. He's going to do one of two or three things. He's either going to be in the garage tinkering around. He's going to be watching TV all day long and or taking naps all day long. He's not going to do a thing. He's taking the day off, but he wanted to surprise his wife. So once she got off to work, he began to go through the house. He cleaned up the kitchen from the night's dishes before, last night. He cleaned up the kitchen. He prepared a meal for when she got home so she didn't have too much to do. He vacuumed the house and put that smelly stuff on the carpet so it would just rise and make the whole house smell very flowery, and men really appreciate that. Don't you? <laughs> oh, yeah. This man even washed a couple loads of laundry. And maybe that's something we should never do, guys. I don't know. But he dried it. He folded it. And he even put it in what he thought was the proper place. He even ironed a few of his own shirts and put them away. He cleaned the toilets. He cleaned the bathrooms. Thank you, I'm with you. And he couldn't wait for his wife to come home. So finally the time came. She drove up in the, the uh, driveway and uh, she came in the house. She took her coat off, hung it up, gave him a kiss, said hello. And she looked around and she didn't say a thing. She did not say, wow, it smells great. Wow, the house looks nice. I can smell dinner cooking. She didn't say a word. He's a little baffled. So they sit down to dinner and they have their normal chit-chat back and forth about how your day was and a few little other things, family situations going on. And she said, nothing. And he's, he's biting the bit. Finally, they get into bed. They get all tucked in and she gives him a kiss on the cheek. She rolls over to go to sleep and he's right at the very verge of anger. He's at the very edge of anger, but he musters up. There's a word for you, Jimmy. We remember that one. He musters up as sweet a voice as he can get. And he says, sweetheart, didn't you notice that I did the laundry? Didn't you notice that I ironed a few shirts of mine or pants or whatever it may have been? Didn't you notice that I even cooked dinner, cleaned up from last night and cleaned up from tonight? Didn't you notice that I vacuumed and the house smells so sweet? Didn't you notice that I even cleaned the toilets? It's a thankless job. She turned to him, or she didn't even turn over to him, and she said, it's a thankless job, isn't it, hon? You see, she had been doing that for years, 
and not one word. He does it once and thinks he's outdone her. So he should receive all the praise and glory. My friend, we should not do what we do for the glory of God to receive the thanks and the glory from mankind. Man appreciates thank yous. We do appreciate it, but we don't do it for that reason. We know that. We should not do what we do so we can begin to stack up enough points so that God is forced to love me and to keep me in covenant with Him. But we should do what we do because we want to be more like our big brother. We want to be more like Jesus Christ. Or we will do as little as possible staying on the fringes of Christianity because we just don't quite trust God as much as we should. And we're happy in the suburbs. Our desire should be to conform to the image of God's Son because of the grace that He has, and the Word is lavished on us. He has lavished on us His grace. It is all around us where we live today. We are saved by the grace of God, not by works. And this brings me to point number three. In verse 10, Paul says, We are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God all prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Notice the word workmanship. We are his workmanship. The Greek word, which is the original language here, has the idea of a piece of fabric. Now, if you've ever been in a woman's or man's sewing room where they like to sew and make things, dresses or pants or jackets or whatever they make, if you've ever been in one of those, sometimes you think, how do they know where anything is? Because there's pieces here, pieces there, pieces everywhere. But he or she knows what's going on in that that sewing room. You see, we are God's fabric. When a a person, a seamstress, takes those things, takes two pieces of of material and sews them together, they become stronger than they were by themselves. God works together to bring us together, to have a brotherly love together where there's nothing in this world that can pull us apart except me. Or you. We are God's workmanship. Now, with all of that said, that is point number one and point number two. We're saved by grace and not by works. This does not dismiss us from personal responsibility. This does not dismiss us from keeping our part of the covenant which we entered into when we became a child of God. We are not without responsibility. It does not mean there's nothing that we are required to do. God requires His children to be a part, a part sewn in of His church. It doesn't mean we don't get involved in good works, things we can and should do for one another. It simply tells us that the reason we do the good works has changed. You see, a lot of us might be doing or might have done good works in the world. We might have loved our neighbor and, and borrowed their, they borrow our, our lawnmower, they borrow our tools, and we might have been nice in that way, but it was not because of what Christ did. It's just because mom and dad trained us to be nice people. But the reason we do them now is because of what God has given us. Those of you who have jobs, You go to that job, I would venture to say, because 
after you work so many hours, you get a paycheck. You get a paycheck. Or because you get benefits of dental, vision, hearing, and we're hearing that on the, on the news, every other commercial seems to be something about that, health benefits of some kind. We have a job because we want those things and we receive those things. But listen to this. God gave us the paycheck before we ever went to work. God has lavished on us His grace so that we will bring others to know of how graceful He is, how wonderful He is. God created us in His image to do good works. And notice He says here in in verse 10 there, He says He does this in advance. I like this idea. I like the idea that every day when we get out of bed and begin our day, whether it's Sunday all the way through Saturday, every day that we get out of bed, God has something out there for us that we're going to come in contact with. How are we going to deal with that? Are we going to slight it? Are we going to stay on the outskirts and avoid that situation? God is putting good works in front of us that we can respond to properly. So I would encourage you, as the Bible says, keep your eyes open. Be on the lookout, because as we studied in Hebrews 13 this morning in class, you might entertain an angel not even knowing it. You might entertain something that God has put in front of you that you don't even realize. We face different situations just waiting, just waiting for us to step into and use them for the glory of God. And this is what I find is so interesting about being a Christian. Grace means, grace gives meaning to our lives. Grace gives us purpose for getting out of bed every day. And we should be overwhelmed once in a while? No. We should be overwhelmed even to the point of tears and thankfulness to God for what He has done for us in giving us the grace through His Son, Jesus Christ. We who once were in exile... And dead in sin, rejection, and rebellion. God stepped out of heaven in the form of his son. And he came here to give us the salvation that we should enjoy every single day. And recall every single day what he's done for us. That means that I can respond to God, to Jesus Christ, because of my love for him because of my appreciation for what He's given me. He has lavished on me, and I know He has lavished on you, His grace that He has given to us so freely. If you jump over to Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 9, just a page away if you're there, it speaks of the unspeakable riches of the grace of Jesus Christ that has already been paid, that Paul was willing to go to the Gentiles and tell them about this unspeakable, Riches of the Lord Jesus Christ. God prepared beforehand. He has pre-arranged good works out there. Even today when you leave this building and even before you leave this building, God has a pre-arranged good work for you to be involved in. There's things out here you can sign up to be involved in, to share, and to help this body be closer as the fabric of God. If you've not responded to the thrill, and I mean the thrill and the excitement and even the challenge of that kind of 
life in Christ. And my fear is that you live even right now where you sit. You're living in Lodabar on the outskirts and you do not really enjoy the closeness, the freshness, the thrill and the challenge of being a child of God. Come and take what he's offered you. The covenant of Christ was signed decades before you and I were ever conceived in our mother's womb. The covenant was signed, but it's not yours. It cannot be yours just because you sit here. It will not be yours unless and until you come to Christ and take it freely as his word tells us. Romans chapter 6 verses 3 and 4 as uh, Shelby comes to play for us. Paul said, Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk, walk, walk in the newness of life. My question to you is, is the Christian walk is a beautiful walk. I've been on different beaches, uh, I don't want to say around the world, but in quite a few countries from Israel to Spain to Portugal to Germany to Italy and even down south in the Bahamas and Florida. I've walked on many beaches and have just been in awe of the power of God. But my friend, the Christian walk is a beautiful walk from the first step you take in Jesus Christ. My question is, are you walking? Are you leaping? Are you praising God? Or are you simply limping on the outskirts? Without Christ. And without a relationship to Him. The Bible tells us no relationship with Christ. On His terms. And there is no acceptance into heaven with God. We're going to sing an invitation hymn. If there is one here who needs to make a decision for Christ, if you're a Christian who needs to repent, come, learn of me, Jesus says. Trust me completely, absolutely, and 120%. If you're not in Christ, the Bible says, He that believes and is baptized shall then be saved. But if you don't believe to the point of trusting and obedience... Jesus said you'll be condemned to an eternal hell. And we don't like to talk about that. But we're going to sing an invitation hymn. And if you have a decision to make Christian, come. Non-Christian, come. As we stand and sing.